We know that the Bible is the principal way with which or through which God communicates with us. There are things in the Bible for people of all ages. Uh, Adults, of course, learn from it. Teens can learn from it. Even children can learn from it. I still remember the first proverb that my parents had me memorize when I was very young. It was Proverbs 22, verse 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. I thought it was very unfair that they made me memorize that because I, I was young, but I knew where that was going right away, and I didn't, I didn't like the sound of that. But since we have an activity here that's principally for teens tonight and tomorrow, let's take a teen theme for the sermon. Learning from the Bible can help us in many ways. It can help us grow in maturity, among other things, and that's something that we all should have. The writer Ogden Nash said, you're only young once, but you can stay immature indefinitely. And if you've been around a while, you've met some people who've stayed immature indefinitely. One of the big things on the internet now is lists, the top list of 10 top of this or the five top of this, and those are very popular ways of taking our information from the internet. Uh, The five top ways to save money, the six top computer games, the 12 funniest jokes, etc., Well, I propose that we do a top 10 sermon, except I'm not going to call them the top because I don't feel I can really pick the top 10 passages that we're going to talk about today. But let's just say that they're among the top or the top passages that are useful for teens. Uh, Of course, we know the whole Bible is inspired. It's all useful for various and different things. But some passages connect more with us at different phases in our life. So I've picked 10 passages in the Bible, which I believe are especially important for teenagers to understand. Of course, I think all of us, at least I hope, all of us will uh, be able to find some connections with these things as well. So let's start with number one. Number one is Acts chapter 17, verse 28. Turn there if you would. Let's read it together. Acts chapter 17. So we'll read the verse, and then I'll tell you why I think this is an important thing for teens to consider and remember. Acts 17, verse 28. It's Paul talking about God. And he said, In him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are all his offspring. In him we live and move and have our being. That is a very deep and powerful thing to read. The implications of this verse are enormous. It is because God wills it that we can live and move and exist. Some people in the past have compared God to a watchmaker. He made the universe and he wound it up and then he went on vacation someplace. And he's not really involved in what's going on here on the earth. But this passage says the opposite to that. It's because God wills it second by second that we live and move and exist. If God ever changed his mind, and thankfully he tells us in his word he doesn't change, but if he ever changed his mind, the whole thing would just disappear. Poof, we'd be gone, and we wouldn't even know that that happened if he ever stopped willing the universe to exist. He holds it up, and he holds us up every second of our existence. Imagine how much work God did so that you and I can live and that we can be here today. He created matter and space and time. 
which according to my reading of the theory of relativity are three sides of the same thing. So you can't have one without having all three. The minute you create matter, you get space and you get time. I'm not sure I understand all of that, but that's what the theory is. God created so much matter and so much space and so much time, we can't really even imagine it. When we think of the planet on which we live, he put us in the Goldilocks position in the solar system. If we were very much closer to the sun, the planet would burn up and we wouldn't be able to live. If we were very much farther away from the sun, we'd freeze. We're right in the Goldilocks position, just right so that we can live. God went to a lot of trouble so that we can live here. Think of all the life he put on the planet, from microscopic organisms to blue whales that are 100 feet long and weigh 200 tons. And here we are in the middle of all of that creation. We can think about how complex our bodies are and how amazing the human mind is, what we can understand, what we can learn. We have eyes that see and ears that hear and skin that feels and tongues that taste. And he put all of that together so that we can live. He did all of that and gave us consciousness, which scientists still haven't figured out where that comes from or what it is. Why are we conscious? Why do we have events happening in our minds that we can control and guide and, and channel? Science has no answer for that. But God did that so that we can think and imagine and have a relationship with him so that we can be here today, so that we can live and eventually graduate to a higher level of existence, his level of existence. That shows God's love, his power, and his omniscience. He knows everything. But there's another implication in that passage that we read there. The other implication is we don't belong to ourselves. We don't belong to ourselves. I encourage you to think about that a little bit. We don't own ourselves. We belong to God. He brought us into existence and he maintains, sustains our existence every minute of every day. To be truly happy and fulfilled, we must live our lives in the knowledge that we don't belong to ourselves, that we belong to God. Now, God allows people the option of living as if they do belong to themselves, and most people in the world do that. They do whatever they want. But if we live like that, if we live as if we belong to ourselves, then if you think about it, we don't really know what we're supposed to do. Why are we here? What, what's my mission? What's my goal? How am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to accomplish? We just bounce around, which is what most people do in the world, guided or pushed by passion or lust or the desire for something or someone to be admired, to acquire things, and they just kind of bounce around through life not knowing how to live because they've fallen for Satan's lie that we belong to ourselves when in reality we don't. And then life goes by very quickly and it's over before we know it and we haven't really accomplished anything that's going to last. The philosopher Seneca said, life does not pause to remind you that it is running out. Now, I know, I remember being a teen and remember thinking that, you know, there's a, I got a long time in front of me, 70 years, probably maybe 80 years, that's a long time to live. But if you ask any older person, they'll tell you, no, that just goes by in the blink of an eye. I can remember just yesterday being a teenager and now here I am in my 60s, 70s, 80s, and I don't have that much time left in this mortal coil. And that is the end of it. If we live like we belong to ourselves, 
We're not going to accomplish anything. In the end, we die and it ends, unless we've been serving God's plan. Then we get to move on to the next amazing eternal phase of existence. So please remember Acts chapter 27, verse 28. God loves you. He loves us. He's gone to a lot of trouble so that we can live and stay alive. And also remember, we don't belong to ourselves. We belong to our creator. And if we live as we do, if we live as if we do belong to ourselves, our lives probably won't be very happy and they will certainly be futile. But if not, if we live as if God is our owner, our creator and our maker, then we can look forward to an eternity of happiness. And we'll talk more about that in another passage. Second passage I would like to take is Jeremiah chapter one. Jeremiah chapter one. Verse four. Jeremiah chapter one, verse four. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Look how God, how detailed God was in what he told Jeremiah. God knew, God formed, God sanctified, and God ordained him before he was even born. God knows all about us before we see the light of day. He knows all the chromosomes and what they portend for us, what they mean. In some cases, as in Jeremiah's case, it would appear he gives special gifts. He equips someone for a job to do, a mission to accomplish. God knows in advance who's going to be gifted in music or science or sports or languages, who's going to have a good sense of spatial orientation or a good sense of humor. And he knows what challenges we're going to face. He knows which of us are going to need to wear glasses and who's going to snore and who's going to have flat feet. He knows all of that about us before we ever come into the world. And he has a plan for each one of us. He knows us, he knows our names, and he has a plan for us. Sometimes, at least, the plan is very precise like it was for Jeremiah. Sometimes it appears that God's plan may be a bit more general, which would be a lot less stressful if you read Jeremiah's life. We have quite a bit of freedom in life to live within the the guidelines of God's law, but still God does have a plan for each of us. And fulfilling his plan will make us the happiest that we can be. That's the best thing we can do because we were made to do that. And when we do something that we were made to do that is natural, that we're good at, that's as happy as people can be. People used to understand that God had plans and used people. Historian Daniel Borston said, two centuries ago when a great man appeared, people looked for God's purpose in him. Today they look for his press agent. We've forgotten about God as a culture increasingly. Fewer and fewer people understand that God has purposes for people. But that doesn't mean he stopped doing that. He still does, especially for those with whom he's working now. I hope that you're curious and excited to find out what God's plan is for you, because it will be terrific. Terrific. 
There won't be anything better for you than that. When I think of my own life, I can remember telling people as a teenager, I don't care if I make much money, but I want to have adventures and I want to travel. Later on, I learned that adventure actually comes from an old French word, which meant going through an ordeal. I've had a few of those too. To have an adventure, it's not supposed to be easy. It has hard and pleasant moments in pursuit of an exciting goal. And as I look at my life, I'm astonished at how much of that has happened and how excited and fulfilling it's been for me. I'm going to ask God one day, at least I plan to, did you put those desires in me? Did you make me that way so that I would be excited about my life? I think the answer to that is yes, because I've been very well served. Those are the two things I really wanted, travel and adventure, and God's been very generous because that's the way he is. He's generous with his creation. So remember Jeremiah 1, verses 4 and 5. God knows you personally. He knows all about you all the way down to the basic genetics. And he has a plan for you to accomplish. And I hope that you can't wait to find out what it is because it will be amazing. Let's look at another one now, number three, Ecclesiastes 11. Ecclesiastes 11. Verses nine and 10. Ecclesiastes 11, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. Therefore, remove sorrow from your heart, put away evil from your flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Our young years are a very special and wonderful time. Most of us have good health, lots of energy. We have an ease of learning, we have quick minds, although don't underestimate the worth of experience as compared to a theoretical education. These verses say, be happy. Your youth is not a time for sorrow and your possibilities are immense. So I encourage you all to try to learn new things, try different things in your youth within the boundaries of God's law and man's law. Let me make some suggestions for things you could do. Learn to play an instrument, learn a foreign language. Learning French completely changed the course of my life. I wouldn't have married who I married, I wouldn't have lived in Europe when I did, I wouldn't have traveled as much as I traveled. All of that started because I learned French. Learn a cool skill, learn how to drive a stick shift, Learn the basics of cooking. Learn how to sew on buttons. Learn how to choose clothing wisely. Learn good personal grooming habits and hygiene. Learn first aid. Learn how to draft or draw and paint. Learn conversation skills. That will make a huge difference in your life. And if that seems rather daunting to you, there are books that can help. I remember reading one in my youth called Conversationally Speaking, and it totally changed the way I communicated with people. Also helped me find a fantastic wife because I knew how to communicate. Learn how to talk on the phone, not just text. That's a skill. Take some practice. Learn basic auto maintenance. Learn how to change a tire. Learn how to use jumper cables. Learn various navigation skills. Learn how to sail a boat. Learn time management and how to use a schedule. Learn what a credit score is and how to have a good one. Learn how to turn off an overflowing toilet and how to use a plunger. 
Learn about compound interest and why Albert Einstein said it's the most powerful force in the universe. Learn how to do your own laundry. Learn how to eat healthy. Learn how to prepare a tax return. Learn wilderness survival skills. Learn how to decide between a doctor's appointment, urgent care, and the ER. Learn what to do if you get pulled over for a traffic stop. Learn some basic carpentry skills. Learn how to turn off a a smoke alarm and how to change the battery. Learn how to recognize fraud in emails. Learn how to remember important dates in other people's lives. Learn how to plan a trip, pick a fun destination, plan some side trips along the way, and plan a budget. You definitely want to do that. Learn how to plan trips. And as we do these things, as we try our hand at different things, know that there are consequences for every action, for what we decide to do, every move we make. The French philosopher Michel Foucault said, people know what they do, frequently they know why they do what they do, but what they don't know is what they do does. In other words, consequences. We don't always, we're not able to see down the road to the consequences of our own actions. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the ends thereof are the ways of death sometimes. Let me give you an example. I knew a teen who grew up in the church, and he decided to try something bad for him, smoking. His parents warned him against it, but he saw others doing it, and some of his friends, some of his friends said it was great. So he told me later on what he was thinking at the time was, I'll just try it for a while, and then I'll stop before it damages my health. It'll just be fun. But after he tried it for a while, he found it was impossibly hard to stop. That's the way addiction works. He told me later that he'd tried for years and he really, really wished he'd never started at all. But he thought he had control of the situation. He didn't know he could lose control of the situation. When I lost touch with him, he still hadn't been able to kick that habit. I know someone else who wasn't able to stop smoking in spite of warnings from his doctor. Eventually, the smoking caused the collapse of blood vessels in his legs, and he had to have them amputated for something like smoking. He had no idea anything like that could even happen. Did you know that could happen? It can happen. When he took that first puff, he had no idea what the consequences were going to be. I know a medical doctor, not in the church, who got hooked on opiates. Even though he knew how habit-forming they were, He had an accident, he started taking them, and he just couldn't stop. He got hooked. And some of the artificial opiates that are out there, the synthetic ones, are so habit-forming that even one or two doses can sometimes create an addiction. So he's still a doctor, but he can't, he's lost his authority to prescribe those kinds of drugs. He can't do it anymore. Such things can happen with cigarettes, with alcohol, with medications, with pornography which is more addictive than heroin, according to some experts. Very hard to stop. We think to ourselves, oh, I'll be in control. I'll just stop. There's a joke among people who smoke. They say, it's easy to quit smoking. I've done it hundreds of times. Decisions get called into judgment, and they have consequences. The last part of that passage said, put away evil from your flesh for childhood and youth are vanity. It means they go by really quickly. They're there and then they're not. When we're young, as I said before, it seems like life is long. Sometimes we're even bored. That ever happened to you? Happened to me. 
We want to get to those milestones. I just can't wait till I can uh, drive a car or work and have my own money or get married. And it seems like it's going to take forever to get there. But I can tell you that's a temporal illusion. That's a kind of time warp. Our youth goes by very, very quickly, as does life in general. Somebody once said life is like a roll of toilet paper. The farther along you get, the faster it goes. So we want to take advantage of every minute that God gives us and fill it with worthwhile activities. There's no time to waste. Because before you know it, you're the one that's going to want to go to bed at 10 o'clock on weeknights and look forward to the weekend so you can sleep and have to Google all the abbreviations that you see online and have, up to, have to give up certain foods because your body decides to develop heartburn or realize that your favorite film came out more than a decade ago when you won't recognize the people on the red carpet and then your children will roll their eyes at you. It's going to happen faster than you think. Also, just as an afterthought, I would suggest it's good for older folks, and I, I, I'm in that category now, to try to keep some of the enthusiasm and the joy and the curiosity of youth. That can be maintained to a certain extent, and it makes life much more joyful. Cicero, the famous Roman writer and philosopher, said, as I approve of the youth that has something of the old man in him, so I am pleased with an old man who has something of the youth. And that's true. That can be true. In any event, remember Ecclesiastes 11, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice in your youth, but remember. Next passage, Matthew 19, 17. Matthew 19, 17. Jesus said, he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. No one is good but one, that is God. This is another incredibly important fundamental principle we must understand, a truth. God is good. Now that may seem very obvious. Nobody's going to argue with that, right? Well, Satan would argue with it. He doesn't think God is good. He thinks God's holding out on him, not giving him everything that he deserves. He thinks God is unfair. And sometimes human beings are tempted to think that God is not fair when life gets hard. But God is good, and the Bible repeats that several times. In Exodus 34, 6, and 7, God proclaimed his name to Moses. Here's one version of God's name. He has several. The eternal, the eternal God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's God's name. Abounding in goodness is part of his name. The psalmist said of God in Psalm 1968, you are good and do good. You are good and do good. Not everybody believes this, especially, as I said, when we go through a difficult time in life. We're tempted to doubt. Why doesn't God do something? Why am I stuck here? Why do I have to suffer? I don't understand what's going on. Why does this hurt? I can't find answers. And we don't find them immediately. There are answers. 
and eventually we'll find more precise ones, but we don't always understand immediately, and it is frustrating. The Bible says God is good because he's working out his plan of salvation for all humanity. He's good because he leads people to repentance. He's good because he gave his son as a sacrifice so our sins can be forgiven. And when you think about it, we have difficult times in life, but we also have some very, very good times. God has built a lot of joy and fascination into human life. I work with some of the poorest people in the world, and I have the privilege, fairly often, of laughing with them. People who live in very, very rudimentary circumstances by our standards, but they laugh. They have moments of happiness when they watch their children growing up or when they eat a good meal. There's laughter. I cry with them sometimes too, more than I do with people in this nation, but there are moments of laughter and joy even in the most challenging circumstances of life. It's really important that we hold on to that simple truth. God is good, especially when we suffer or witness suffering. There is no bad in God. No meanness, no cruelty, no indifference, no trickiness, no sneakiness, none of that. He is just good. And the pain is only temporary and is preparing us for an eternity without any pain or suffering. More about that anon. So we need faith. Knowing God is good is the key to having faith that he'll keep his promises. Hebrews 11.1 says, faith means being sure of the things we hope for and knowing that something is real even if we don't yet see it. That's the New Century Version. Verse six of that chapter, without faith, no one can please God. Anyone who comes to God must believe that he's real and that he rewards those who truly want to find him. Same version. James 1.17 says, every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So remember, Matthew 19, 17, God is good. Hebrews 4 now. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. It says... For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Like many of the passages we're looking at today, there's a lot to unpack in these couple of verses. Let's start at the end of the second verse and go backwards. So God knows everything about us, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he wants us to improve. He wants us to grow, to become better. And we're going to have to give an account of what we've done, if we've grown or if we've not grown, or if we could have grown more. We're going to have to explain ourselves. Everyone's going to have to explain himself or herself unless we have our sins forgiven. Then there's nothing to have to explain. That's one of the wonderful blessings of baptism and the forgiveness of sins. 
we don't have anything to explain. God knows us. We're naked before him, it says. All things are naked before him. He knows us and he wants us to be better. So we need to be aware of ourselves. We need to have that division of thought, what's going on in our hearts. I've had the chance to visit a famous site in Greece several times. It's a place called Delphi, and it was the most important religious center, I guess you could say, in the in the Greek world, and maybe even the Greco-Roman world, they believed that there was an oracle there that could answer questions on behalf of the gods. And there was a famous temple of Apollo at Delphi, and there were three aphorisms, three condensed, powerful sayings that were there that were inscribed in that temple. Only ruins of it are left now. But we know what was written there because they had a big impact on uh, the ancient world. One was nothing to excess. That's biblical. Don't do anything to excess. The second was certainty brings insanity. I don't totally agree with that one. We can be certain about some things about God that he reveals to us, but we should be careful about thinking that everything we think we know is actually correct. So some caution is called for there. And the last one was know thyself. Know thyself. We need, that's a true one too, we need to know ourselves. And knowing yourself is a lot harder than it might seem. It's good for us to spend some time to really think about what makes me tick? Why do I do what I do? What is my deepest motivators? Or my, what are my deepest motivators? Everyone likes to believe that they're good people. Uh, you'll even hear career criminals say, well, I'm really a good guy down deep inside. I you know, just rob stuff. He's not really self-aware. He doesn't know himself. We need to know what we're really like. And some people are afraid to look. They don't really want to know what they're like because it might be disappointing. It's a scary thought to really have a good, strong look at oneself. But since we're going to have to give an account, explain ourselves, it's better to have a good look and then see, okay, what do I need to do about this? Where can I grow? How can I improve? The Greek philosopher Socrates famously said, the unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. He meant if we don't think about how we live and why, if we're not checking our progress and our character and our honesty and our behavior toward others, then the experience of life has little or no value. The Bible teaches that. It teaches us to meditate. Meditation is about knowing ourselves. It's about comparing ourselves with the word of God and asking, how do I measure up? What should I be doing differently? 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5 says, examine yourself as to whether you're in the faith. Are you, are you doing what you're supposed to do? How's the progress going? Theoretical physicist Richard Feynman said, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool because the human being plays games with himself, doesn't really want to look into those dark corners and find out maybe there's something that needs to change. Michel de Montaigne, one of my favorite French writers said, every man and woman is a good education to themselves provided they have the capability to spy on themselves from close up. I love the way he turned that phrase. 
Spy on yourself from close up. That is, <laughs> sort of take a step back from where you are, look at you as if you were someone else and say, what do I see? What's going on here? What's the motivation? Why is the person living this way? I would encourage all of us to spy on ourselves from close up because that's self-awareness. Now we get to the start of the passage. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what the word of God does. A discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In other words, studying the Bible will not only help us to learn God's will, it will help us become more self-aware. As we read God's word, we become more aware of ourselves. Yes, I, I have to admit, I'm sometimes like that. That's why I'm impatient, or that's why I sometimes lose my temper or say things that hurt people. We want to be self-aware. So remember Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. Know yourself. And remember that studying the Bible will help you do that because we all have an account to give. Jeremiah 29, 11 now. Let's go there. Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the thoughts that I have toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and hope. We've already seen that God is good, so all of his plans for us are good as well, even if we don't yet see the reality of their outcome. But we know that his plans are good. He has thoughts toward us of peace and not evil to give us a future and hope. God promises his people a wonderful future. He thinks about us, he thinks about the future, and he looks forward to the completion of his plan when we will know true, complete, and lasting peace and good when all of our hopes will be fulfilled. God only has good intentions for us. But the context of this passage is quite interesting and illustrative also. The context was a message from God to Jews who had just recently been taken into captivity in Babylon, far from their homes, in a place where they didn't speak the language probably very much, and they were captives. They desperately wanted to return to Judea, their homeland. In the previous verse, God had said, no, it's not going to be a quick return. It's 70 years. So make your peace with that. Do the best you can in the position where you are. Build houses, have families, get on with life. But then that's when he told them, because I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Thoughts of peace and not evil. I'm going to give you a future and a hope, but it's not going to happen right now. You're going to have to be patient. And the same is true of us sometimes in life. We find ourselves in situations we don't like. We want to change. We want to try something different. The message to us is the same. Plan to live your life where you are. Improve it if you can. But if you can't, just get on with your life and do what you need to do. Be patient. It will be worth it because the future I plan for you is beyond imagination. That's a hard lesson for some of us. It's been hard for me at times. But it's just true. Scientists have researched something called delayed or deferred gratification. Uh, That is, when people are willing to give up an immediate pleasure for a greater good a little bit later on. 
There was an experiment conducted by Walter Mischel of Stanford University where young children were given a choice between one small reward immediately or two rewards a few minutes later. For instance, a child might be offered a single marshmallow. You can have a marshmallow now, or if you wait 10 minutes, you can have two mar marshmallows. And then they studied them to see which ones were willing to defer the gratification. And then they followed those children through life. And the results found that the children who were able to wait a little longer for the larger reward tended to have better outcomes in life. They had higher SAT scores. They had educational attainment that was better. They even had better body mass index later in life. So they were healthier. All of that is connected to the ability to be patient and say, I'm going to deal with what I have right now because what's coming in the future is so worth it. That's one of the big lessons of life, not to live for the moment, but to keep our focus on the future reward that God holds out to us. Our Savior Jesus Christ did that. It says in Hebrews 12, 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus kept his eyes on that joy that was to come, not only for him, but for all of his brethren, for you and me. He sat down now at the throne of God. Paul also thought this way. Here's how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So God has thoughts of peace for us. He wants to give us hope and a future. And nothing can stop him from doing that. But we have to be willing to wait. We have to defer some gratification. And when we learn to do that, it'll make our lives much, much better. So remember Jeremiah 29, verse 11, and the lesson of delayed gratification. And remember the wonderful outcome God promises us. We just have to be patient and persevere through the less than pleasant parts of life. And remember that God has big, big plans for us that we really don't want to miss. It's worth the wait. 1 Corinthians 10 now, if you would. 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 13. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. When we're tempted to do something wrong, that temptation always comes from Satan or from our own human nature. Temptation never comes from God. He allows trials, but temptation is trying to get us to fall. Temptation is about the intent. They want you to fail. If someone tempts you, they're trying to get you to fail. That's not the same as a trial. It's different. God never tempts anyone, it says in James 1.13. And God promises when we're in temptation always to make a way out. So we can always pray when we're struggling against a temptation, show me, please show me that way of escape. And God will do that. He'll make 
a way of escape for us, and that's a wonderful promise. At the same time, I sometimes I've heard this passage slightly misquoted, that we're never tried or tested beyond what we can bear. And that isn't really what it says. There's a difference between a temptation and a trial. Temptation is a trial, but not every trial is a temptation. It's a kind of a subset, if you see that. The Bible shows that some trials can be above our strength, but God promises he'll help us then. There are some things that are too much for us. Let me read you 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 to 10. This is what Paul said. And we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure, above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us, in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Paul had a really dangerous job. Preaching the gospel was very unpopular in a lot of the places he went. He was stoned, he was whipped, he was shipwrecked. There were riots that happened around him. He was thrown in prison. People sought to kill him. So that was Paul was used to that kind of thing. So he said, uh, we just have a sentence of, we thought we were going to die, but God's capable of resurrecting us, so we just have to put ourselves in his hands. He doesn't say what it was that nearly killed him. Different things have been proposed. He fought with wild beasts in Ephesus. He was thrown to the lions, apparently. That's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15. He was given 39 stripes. That could kill people. He was in the center of a riot in Ephesus, instigated by Demetrius. Maybe that was the time when he nearly died. Maybe there was a a wicked persecution against him in Ephesus. Maybe he had a recurring disease. We know that Paul did have a recurring disease, so maybe it was the, the disease that almost took him. But whatever it is, we should recognize that there are some trials in life that may be above our strength by ourselves. There are times in life when we must have God's help and intervention and strength. The only solution sometimes will be God's help when we won't be able to do it on our own. If we choose to accept God's offer and walk with him, he'll be near and we'll be able to call on that strength quickly. And I hope that all the young people here will make that choice. But in a group this size, there's a chance that some of you, a few of you, will decide to live like you belong to yourselves down the road. You won't want to walk with God, you'll decide to walk with the world. And it sometimes might feel liberating at first. I mean, hey, no rules. That appeals to the carnal mind. But sooner or later, that way of life becomes hard. You suffer. You waste a lot of time if you go that way. But I want to remind you now, and I hope you keep this in the back of your mind, down the road you wake up and say, you know, this this life is not working out for me. I thought this was going to be great, and it's horrible. But I remember, I've forgotten his name, but in a sermon he said, you can still call on God. Because one or both of your parents have put their lives in God's hands, you're in a different category from all the other teenagers in the world. It says in 1 Corinthians 7, you are holy. God considers you to be set apart. And we believe that means you can always come back to God. You have an access to him that other people who aren't called don't have. So if and when you find yourself between a rock and a hard place down the road because of bad decisions you made when you've reached the end of your rope, 
and you don't see any way out, you can call on God. He won't mock you. He won't turn you away because you made bad decisions. He'll help you get your life turned around and get you to a safe place. He'll be like the father of the prodigal son in Luke 15, who ran to his son and hugged him and kissed him and brought him back in the family. So just tuck that away. I hope you don't decide to go that way, but if you do, remember 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation to sin will be too strong to overpower us. There'll always be a way of escape, but some trials in life can be too much for us, and we'll have to rely on God's help to survive and not be destroyed. Let's go to Proverbs 13, verse 20 now. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. With whom we spend our time has a very big impact on our lives, a very big impact. Friendship can be a really tricky thing. Sometimes friends can betray us, and we learn about friendship as we go through life, as we should. I read a story recently about a rabbi and a priest who got into a terrible car accident, and they climbed out of their wrecked cars, and both of them were totally destroyed. And the rabbi looked at the priest, and he said, look at that. Both our cars are completely demolished, and yet here we are alive and well. This must be a sign from God that we should become good friends. And the priest nodded. He was a little bit shook up. Then the priest looked at the total wreckage of his car, and he noticed he pulled out a, a, a bottle of wine that hadn't been destroyed. And the rabbi said, look at that. Even though everything in the car was destroyed, this bottle of expensive wine is not broken. That also must be a sign from God that we should open it now and drink to celebrate our new friendship. So the priest agreed. Rabbi opens the bottle of wine, hands it to the priest, who takes a couple of good swigs. He hands the bottle back to the rabbi, who puts the cap back on it and hands the bottle back to the priest. And the priest says, aren't, well, aren't you going to drink some? And the rabbi said, you know, I think I'll wait for the police to arrive. That friendship probably isn't going anywhere. That's a problematic friendship. Some people make friends really easily. When I was a teen, I didn't. I had a hard time making friends. I was socially awkward. So sometimes I was tempted to accept as friends just about anybody who would have me. And that got me in trouble sometimes. That wasn't wise. I didn't pick my friends always as carefully as I should have. Now, we can be friendly with everybody, but we should choose our friends carefully. We can be friendly with everybody, but we should choose our friends carefully. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, evil company corrupts good habits. And good habits are hard to make. It's hard to develop good habits. We don't want to ruin them because of the people that we hang around with. So some suggestions for friends. Choose honest friends who won't break the law. Choose friends who don't have destructive habits. Choose friends who give as much as they take. Choose friends who help you be a better person. Choose friends who get your quirks and your weird sense of humor and like you anyway. Choose friends who understand that your religious beliefs are important to you and they respect that. 
and always, always, we should be learning from our past record of friendships, learn from previous friendships. This is true of actual human friends that we can have, but increasingly, it's also true about virtual companions that we might have. If you hang out with the team from Grand Theft Auto, that's gonna have an impact on you. If you hang out with the guys at Assassin's Creed, that's gonna change the way you think too. Subtly, doesn't mean you become an assassin the first time you play it, but over time, it'll change the way you think and the way you look at the world. All of the mass shootings by young men that have been done in the past years were done by young men who played what are called first-person shooters. That's where on the screen you see your arm come out with a gun and you shoot people. You're the first person, you're shooting other people in the game. And those are incredibly popular. Incredibly, incredibly popular. I did a, a search on there to find out how many first-person shooter games there were, and you know what the first result that popped up was? How many first-person shooter games are there? And the result said, the top 100 best first-person shooters. There are a bunch of them out there. And I've got a book here called On Killing by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. He goes into the psychology of what happens to people when they kill other people and how soldiers have to be trained in order to be able to do that because there's a big inhibition for most human beings to kill other human beings. One of the tricks that the army has found or one of the, the ways the army gets people to the point where they'll actually shoot another person is pop-up targets where it's just reflex and they um, basically they're practicing something like a first-person shooter and it breaks down inhibitions and people don't look at other people the way that they should anymore. It desensitizes people. So we need to pick our friends carefully, our real life flesh and blood friends, but the other people we hang out in the virtual world, hang out with in the virtual world as well because they, they can break down inhibitions, they can change us, they can change the way we think. Evil company corrupts good habits, and it's so hard to make good habits, to build those. We don't want to take a chance on that. So remember Proverbs 13, verse 20, and choose your friends with care. Now let's go to Colossians chapter 3. This is number 9. We've got two more to go. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 7. Colossians 3, verses 5 to 7. Therefore, put to death your, mem uh, your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So the converted members at Colossae came from a variety of backgrounds, and some of them weren't really very wholesome, and they changed their lives. This is a list of sins that makes God terribly angry, and he's going to punish the sons of disobedience who practice these things. The interesting thing about this list, which is different from some other lists of sins that are found throughout the New Testament, is that it appears all of these have to do with sexuality that violates God's instructions. The word that's translated by fornication is porneia. It means any illicit sexual intercourse. Uncleanness is another word that means physical or moral impurity. 
So mixing something good with something rotten. Passion comes from the word pathos, which means violent emotions. In English, passion can be a good thing sometimes or a bad thing, depending on how it's used. But in the New Testament, pathos is always bad. These violent, uncontrolled emotions that steer us in certain directions. The word translated by evil desires means something similar, perhaps a little broader in scope. And covetousness is a different word in Greek, which commentators have defined as greediness, rapacity, entire disregard for the rights of others. Another one translated it, the arrogant and ruthless assumption that all other persons and things exist for one's own benefit. Be especially careful about staying sexually pure. It's a challenge in this world where so much garbage is thrown at us, but it's very important to God. That's an important part of your life. If you follow God's instructions at the right time, it will be a wonderfully positive part of your life with no downsides. But if sexuality is abused, it can be one of the most painful and destructive parts of your life. It can destroy you. The Song of Solomon is a book about marriage, marriage as it should be, including sexuality. So kind of some parts in Song of Solomon that will make you blush a little bit. But one important principle is repeated three times in the book. It's this. Women of Jerusalem, take an oath and make me a promise. Do not stir up love. Don't wake it up until it's ready. That's the New International Reader's Version. That's chapter 8, verse 4. But almost the exact same thing is written in chapter 2, verse 7, and chapter 3, verse 5. Don't wake it up until it's ready, until it's the right time. Don't dabble with it. Don't go down that road until the appropriate time in your life. One day you're going to meet that special person with whom you're going to want to spend the rest of your life. So be faithful to that person now before you've even met them. Or maybe you have met them and you don't know. But whatever the case, be faithful to them now. The time will come and it will be wonderful. So wait. Don't wake love until it's ready. The world bombards us with the garbage idea that sex is no big deal. It's a casual thing, a hookup for the night, just for fun. That is a huge satanic lie. Sex is a very big deal. The wrath of God is going to come down on those who go that way of life and don't repent of it. It's a very big deal to God. And because God has given people over to a reprobate mind, as it says in Romans 1, the world today is getting more and more confused about sex and even what it means to be male and female, the way God made us. So do everything you can and ask God's help to keep yourself pure from that. And that starts not with your body, although it obviously includes that. It starts in your mind. It starts with what you let yourself look at and what thoughts you're willing to entertain in your mind. Job was a very righteous man, and he said in Job 31, verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? He was married. He's not supposed to be watching pretty young girls. Another paraphrase version says, Why then should I undress young women with my eyes? 
Jesus told his disciples to take very strong action to avoid sinning by looking at things they didn't have a right to look at. He said, if your eye causes you to sin, how could your eye cause you to sin? Well, looking at something you're not supposed to look at or looking lustfully at something. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Of course, we understand it's not really our eye that makes us sin. It's our mind that looks through the eye that takes us places we shouldn't go. So I would really encourage everybody to build good habits while you're young. It will save you a lot of pain and trouble later on in life. Sometimes habits are formed in teenage years that people struggle with almost the rest of their lives because they got bad habits instead of building good habits. Be clean. And if you've already made mistakes, stop. Stop. In time, if you stop, some, even much of the emotional and spiritual damage that comes from that can be repaired. But you have to stop. It only gets harder when habits are ingrained. So remember Colossians 3, verses 5 to 7. Don't wake love until it's time and be morally clean. Finally, let's turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. Verse 4. Revelation 21, verse 4. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. I love that verse. That's our future. That's what it's going to be like for all eternity if we choose to walk with God. It's hard for us to believe and imagine that there could be existence without pain or sorrow or crying or death because we experience all of those things. It's a part of our life. We learn to be very careful in the way we do everything to avoid pain, to avoid hurting ourselves, because it's very, very unpleasant. These are such a large part of this world and this life. And the longer we live, the more memories we have of pain and sorrow and crying and death. When I was in high school, my senior year in Missouri, we had a classmate die three weekends in a row. Three different people died, one each weekend. And I can tell you there were a lot of freaked out high schoolers in that school. No one expects something like that to happen when everybody's so young and healthy. But it had to do with car accidents and alcohol and that type of thing. Um, One guy I knew, he wasn't really a friend, but I knew him. He was out drinking beer with his friends. He drank enough that he passed out in the back seat. The driver wrecked the car. And for all we know, we don't think he ever woke up. He was just killed while he was passed out there. Deaths. Three funerals in a row. That was a very, very hard thing to take. Really made a lot of people think, including me. Greg Schwartz, Dr. Greg Schwartz, is a dentist and an elder in Kagwa, and he visited Rwanda with me once uh, many years ago, and he decided he wanted to help the members there, who mostly are very poor. So he started traveling to Rwanda and offering free dental care to our members. And also, he trains other dentists in Rwanda with the latest techniques. The first time that he and I walked into the university dental clinic, I will never forget, we heard people screaming in the dentist offices. 
because you had to pay for anesthetic and they didn't have the money for it. So they're having cavities filled and other procedures done cold, no anesthetic. I can still remember the screaming. And that's going on all over the world. That's going on in lots of places around the world. One of the first things Dr. Schwartz did was arrange to have a lot of anesthetics sent to that facility. When we go there now, we don't hear screaming anymore. He's made a big difference for a lot of people. Pain, terrible pain. I just have, had some dental work done and I, there was hardly any pain at all because they filled me so full of anesthetic I, and I like it that way. <laughs> I've had shingles, that hurts like crazy. Later I had sciatica, that hurt even worse. But we have pain relievers available to us. We manage our pain, that's a big thing in medicine, we're gonna manage your pain. And I'm very thankful that they can do that. But not everybody in the world can do that. Pain. I once performed the funeral of a 15-year-old girl who'd been run over and killed by a drunk driver. Her classmates all came to the, the funeral, rather it was outdoors, it was an outdoor graveside service. And there were a lot of tears and a lot of confusion. They couldn't understand at that young age how something like that could happen. And I remember sitting with her father the day before the funeral in his living room and he looked at me and he said, I didn't know I was happy. I didn't know I was happy. The, the pain of separation from a loved one, death, I didn't know I was happy. There are many wonderfully good things that happen in the world, in our lives, and we should value them and savor them, and also savor the promise of the comfort that's going to come one day when all of the things that hurt us are gonna be a thing of the past. That's gonna be finished, and we'll never know that again. That is God's promise. Have you ever read a really exciting, suspenseful book when you just couldn't wait to find out how it was gonna end and you flipped to the back of the book and you read the last chapter before you went back to read the rest of it because the suspense was just killing you? I admit to having done that more than once. Well, that's what we just did. We just went to the back of the book and we read how the story finishes up. That's an amazing thing. We read the end, the end of your story, the end of my story and just about every last human being's story. Eternity without pain, sorrow, or crying, or death, rather an eternity in perfect health, in omnipotence and omniscience, and joy. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, in your presence, talking about God, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what we're moving toward. Have you ever had the experience of laughing, not because something was funny, but just out of pure joy, the joy of being alive? Downhill skiing does that for me. Coming down the slope and everything's perfectly in sync and it's beautiful and you're controlling your skis and your body and the exhilaration of rushing down the mountainside. Sometimes I just laugh out loud when I go down a hill like that. Not because something's funny, but just the pure joy of being alive. That's our future. Joy. The future that God has planned for us. That's his plan. And there is nothing in heaven or on earth that can stop him from accomplishing that plan. 
and we can thank God for that. Is that a future worth waiting for, worth working for? I believe it is. Do you want that future? I want that future. So remember Revelation 21, verse 4. It promises us an eternity without death, sorrow, crying, or pain. In fact, instead of that, we'll have an eternity of joy, of fun, of delight, pleasure. We really don't want to miss that. So that's my list of 10 important scriptures for teens. I hope that you will give them some thought. And even more, I hope you will act on them. Enjoy the prom tonight and make the most of your life.